ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. Do you remember your first experience of death as a kid? Maybe it was a pet, maybe it was a grandparent. I remember the first funeral I went to. I was maybe seven or eight. It was for a distant relative, someone I didn't know well. But they were also a child, about 12 years old or so. She'd had leukemia. I remember being scared, scared seeing the body, seeing my aunts and cousins cry, and scared of what happens after death. My family's explanations for what happens after death were grounded in religion, but I didn't find their answers exactly comforting. I struggled with the finality of death. I had a lot of questions. What's the point of living if you just have to die? Does dying hurt? In Western Australia, there's an organisation called Lionheart that runs grief camps for kids and teens who've lost a sibling, a parent, or a primary caregiver, so someone really close to them. The camp is split into different age groups, and for kids aged 5 to 12, there's a chance to ask questions during each camp. They're given a piece of paper to write their questions on, and then they put them in a box. And then on the second day, those questions are answered in a session um, answered by a social worker and a medical doctor. Lauren Breen researches grief in children, and she was given access to a collection of more than 200 of these questions. How do you help people get better from COVID? Why do we have to deal with grief? She and her colleagues analysed them, and they noticed a pattern. There were five themes or categories that all of the questions related to. How do I come across normal to other people? Why did my daddy die? Even though it's one sentence, you, your brain automatically fills in, oh, does that mean this happened to that child? Or like you can conjure up this whole story of that child or their family. Mm. And most of the questions were quite um, sophisticated, I guess, and, and, yeah, had a lot of depth to them. Why is it so hard to not think about someone? What you're hearing is some of the questions kids wrote down at these grief camps, and you're going to hear more throughout the show. We've had an adult voice them because, as you'll notice, some of them are pretty heartbreaking, and we didn't want to risk upsetting any kids by having them voice them. So, this is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the five kinds of questions kids ask when someone dies and how to talk to kids about death. Um, okay, I'll get you to start by introducing yourself. So your name, what you do, and where. My name is Lauren Breen. I'm a professor of psychology at Curtin University. Uh, nice. Okay, maybe start by giving me, like, an overview. How different is the experience of grief in children compared to adults? I think it's really different. So, you know, if I think of myself, for example, I'm in my 40s, so presumably I'm probably pretty optimal in my thinking and in my you know, emotional capabilities, children, of course, are not. And this is why they might get very upset, for example, when the food touches on their dinner plate <laughs> or they have a tantrum in, in the shops um, or why they don't understand things in the way that, you know, we would be able to talk to each other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's, I guess, part of the background around why there are lots of differences between how children understand issues of uh, death and dying and grief and loss and how they also manage and cope compared to adults. 
So if you think of, say, for example, quite a young child, maybe a two-year-old, they certainly can understand loss. You know, if something, mm. a favourite toy is taken away from them, for example, or you take the lolly bag away from them, they understand loss. But they probably don't understand death and they certainly wouldn't have an understanding of it being a permanent state. Whereas maybe a four or five-year-old would have a much better understanding of what death is and mm -hmm. maybe still not understanding it as being a permanent state. So maybe the idea, like just in the cartoons, when the character dies and then it pops back up in the next scene or in the next episode. Mm. So, you know, a little bit older than that is when children might start to understand death as a permanent thing. And I guess that one of the assumptions is that many kids might experience death and grief for the first time when they lose a pet or lose a grandparent. Is that sort of how most kids first get introduced to grief, if, if it's even possible to say? Yeah, if you think of grief as the death loss, then probably, yeah, it's more likely to be a grandparent or an, uh, an older neighbour, for example, or someone like that. Or yeah, a pet in, in the home compared to perhaps the death of their parent or a sibling, but those things are also probably a little bit more common than most people realise too. How common? Here's what stats from overseas tell us. We know from some data from Scotland that by the age of about 10, 62% of children have lost someone important to them. Lauren says typically that's someone like a grandparent. Or someone who was, you know, somehow close or known to them. Data from the UK also shows that about 1 in 20, or even now possibly even as many as 1 in 18 children by the age of 18 have had a parent or caregiver die. Mm. And we know that it's probably about somewhere between 5 to 8% of children also have a sibling die. That is so much more common than I, I would have assumed. Do you think most people don't realise it's that common? Yeah, and I think because we don't talk about it, and I think, you know, children, understandably, might not want to talk about it. Mm. But probably if we think of every year 12 classroom right now, mm. there's on average at least one kid who's had a parent die. Wow. So these are the kinds of kids that ended up at the Lionheart Grief Camp, writing questions on a piece of paper and putting them into a box. So after doing this for several camps, Lionheart Camp for Kids came to me and said, We've, we have these questions. Um, are they, could they be of interest to anybody? Could they become, you know, is that something we could do with that? And I said, oh, absolutely. Now, a few things to know about this sample of kids before we get into the kinds of questions they asked. They were all between the ages of 5 and 12, as we mentioned, and there were about 220 of them. They were all from WA, mostly Perth, and in most cases, the deaths these kids were grieving had happened sometime in the 12 months leading up to the camp. The causes of death included illness, accidents, suicide, and substance use. What we don't know is the cultural background of these kids, because that kind of demographic data wasn't collected to preserve anonymity. Finally, the questions these kids asked were collected from several sessions of the camp, held from 2017 onwards. A bit over 200 questions there. And so, the first category of questions Lauren and her colleagues identified had to do with the causes and processes of death. So how does someone actually die? What actually happens to the heart or the brain? Or does dying hurt? You know, explain it to me. I really want to understand the details of what this actually means. How do people's hearts stop working? Is cancer contagious? Why do people get addiction? 
Why do they choose to do their addiction? Lauren says this was the most common category of questions. She reckons that's the case because kids like to understand how things work and ask a million why questions anyways, and this is an extension of that curiosity. Why do people kill themselves? Why do babies die? If my dad had cancer, does that mean I'll die of that too? How do brains fall apart? Why did he leave me? Remember, we don't know how these questions were answered. We simply know that they were what the kids asked. So the next most common category was all about managing grief. So these were questions like, you know, why do I cry more than my brother? Or why do I cry less than my brother? Does that mean I loved mum less because I cry less? Or why do I have so much trouble sleeping now? Or why can't I get to sleep? Why do I keep dreaming about my person who's died? Questions like, why am I feeling a bit jealous of other people who haven't had something like this happen in their family? How can I appear normal to other people? How do I come across normal to other people? There were those kinds of questions around how to adapt to and accommodate that really significant loss into their lives going forward. Why is the sky blue and why do people say blue when they're sad? How can you handle your big feelings? How do you not miss them? Why do we have to deal with grief? Did reading some of those questions break your heart a little bit? Um, yes and no. So when, when I've shown the questions to people who, uh, I guess, don't work in the area, they're like, oh, my goodness. Mm. But I guess because I'm a little bit more used to talking about these kinds of things, right. they, they sort of do, but also they don't. Right, right. Okay. And also, also if they did, I probably couldn't keep working in this area. <laughs> That's a very fair point, yes. <laughs> Lauren says the third category of questions that kids asked related to medical intervention. The different things that maybe doctors and nurses, for example, do, uh, maybe at end of life or to help treat people. So understanding things like medication and there were questions about, like, you know, what is a pacemaker? What does that mean? Does everyone who goes to a hospital die? Why don't they always try to resuscitate people? What is chemotherapy? Tell me more about the medicine or tell me about how, how, how do you even become a nurse or a doctor or, or what, is, what is all the, these roles and these things that happen to help people. How do you help people get better from COVID? How can we help to stop skin cancer? The, then the fourth category was around questions that the, the children had, I guess, more about the meanings of life and death, including literally the question, what is the meaning of life? Wow. I wonder how the social worker and the doctor answered that, yeah. but I'm sure they did a brilliant job. Uh -huh. um, I'd like yeah. to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I think we all might. Mm. Um, yeah, so questions, yeah, these really kind of bigger philosophical type questions about those kinds of things, yeah. What's the point of living if you just have to die? Why do some sick people get better and some don't? If kids don't have a dad, why would God let their mum die? The fifth and final category of questions was also the smallest one. These were questions to do with afterlife. So, you know, is, is there a heaven or what does heaven look like? Or, um, you know, will my uncle be reincarnated? Or um, those kinds of questions like that. Is heaven real? Where do we go when we die? Can you see people when you're dead? Can I still talk to my important person? Why do you think that was the smallest category? 
Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Again, we don't, we didn't, we don't have information about, for example, the religious background of the kids. And mm-hmm. I think just, you know, in a more secular uh, country, uh, you know, the, those kinds of questions could in fact be number one in yeah. some other countries where that would be the thing at the front of centre in terms of the questions to understand. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, the five kinds of questions kids ask when they're grieving the death of a loved one. So to recap, the categories Professor Lauren Breen and her colleagues identified were questions to do with the causes and processes of death, questions to do with managing grief, human intervention, meaning of life and death, and questions to do with what happens after death. And so this, these groupings of questions, tell me a bit more about what you think they tell us about the way kids think about grief. I think in general they tell us that children who are grieving have very sophisticated understandings and also sophisticated questions that they really want to have answered. So I guess one of the potential implications is to talk more about these kinds of issues, hopefully even before it happens within the family, Mm -hmm. so that children have a language to talk about these kinds of things. They have the words and they understand that this is an okay topic to talk about in our house. And with the questions from the grief camp, were you aware which questions came from like a five-year-old versus a 12-year-old? Yeah, we, we didn't know that because we just had the questions that were handwritten by the children. There were some that were handwritten by a volunteer on camp because the children were, you know, obviously some were very young and couldn't maybe write out the questions. And there were some where we couldn't really understand what they were asking and some where they just asked questions that were irrelevant, you know, like something to do with one of the people on camp or something to do okay. with anything like that. But yeah, most of the questions were quite sophisticated, I guess, and and yeah, had a lot of depth to them. And five is, you know, very different to 12. Like that's the age range you were working with. Is the experience of grief within that bracket similar enough at the ends that you can, you know, sort of lump them together and learn something about grief in children as a whole? So grief definitely is different as as children get older. So, you know, for for example, the, the way that an eight-year-old might think and manage their emotions is very different to an older child. So that's the concept that's been talked about for a little while, which is re-grief. So the idea that, say something, um, you know, a child has a parent who dies and the child is eight years of age and they're going to grieve certain things and they're going to do that with the that eight-year-old um, brain and heart, I guess, of how an eight-year-old thinks and mm-hmm. feels. But as they develop, as they become 10 or 15 or 25, they're going to grieve it again in a different way. And they'll also be more aware of those ongoing losses. So maybe, again, thinking about that Mm eight-year-old, well, who's now going to read to me and do the funny voices at bedtime? Mm. They're going to be different losses than who's going to teach me to drive and, oh, dad's not here for my graduation or mum's not here for my wedding or those kinds of ongoing losses as well. Gosh, I hadn't quite thought of it like that, but that's so true. I guess with each passing stage of life, you think about what you're missing out on. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess also, as you get older, you fill in the gaps of what might have confused you as a child. And so you have growing understanding of what actually happened. 
Yeah, and you might have more questions as well, and that's why it can be really important within the family to be able to talk about it and to have it as a topic of ongoing conversation that's okay in the family and okay in the house, Mm. rather than, well, this happened when you're eight, we talked about it once, and then that's it, case closed. Yeah. What other advice do you have about how to talk to kids about grief and death? Yeah, so first of all, I definitely don't want to say, now parents need to be doing all these other things on top of everything else you already do, (laughs) and you're all doing it wrong. That's not what I want to say. I think one of the most important things to think about is when children do experience something quite significant in their life, for example, the death of someone close to them, one of the best things that we can do to support those kids is to support the the adults around them. So whether that's they now have maybe a single parent or Mm. they have someone else who's not a parent looking after them, the best thing we can do is to help them be their best selves because that will help the kids. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just to talk about, sometimes we don't have a chance to talk about it beforehand, but if we do, and if you're, you know, Possibly I'm a little bit of a strange parent myself, but yeah, I would talk about these kinds of things with my own children who are teenagers now, but you know, you walk down the street and you see maybe a, um, a dead lizard on the ground. So you, I would use that and, and say something, oh, look, there's a dead lizard. That lizard is dead. That means it died. That means its body doesn't work anymore. I wonder if its lizard family feels sad now. What do you think? Do you think they could also be feeling sad? What other feelings might they be feeling? And just have a conversation. So it just becomes a normal part of conversation in the family, just like anything else is. Right. That's interesting. So I guess for a lot of people, there might be the assumption that you'd trouble the child or worry the child by talking about death in this way at a young age. But actually, that's that's the healthier thing in the long term. Yeah, and I think if if I was, for example, if I only talked about that to my children, that would definitely be a problem. But, I mean, I'm talking about it being a snippet of, you know, 30 seconds within the day. Right. And then talking about all the other topics as well. Yeah. When it comes to the language you use to talk about death, Lauren says euphemisms are best avoided. Yeah, I think it can sound quite stark to say, you know, if possible, use D words, death, dying and dead, And I know it can sound a bit like, ugh, I don't want to say that. I want to soften it in a way when I'm talking to children. But sometimes euphemisms can be really confusing. So if, you know, if I'm speaking to an adult and I said, oh, I lost my dad last year, no one thinks I've misplaced him. Mm. But you can imagine if you said to a a six-year-old, oh, we lost granddad, they might jump up and try and look for him behind the couch. Mm. Or if we said something's put to sleep, for example, or someone's sleeping now. So those kinds of euphemisms can actually be quite confusing for children because they don't have that understanding of the code that that we understand because we have that much greater sophistication in our thinking and our feelings. Mm. So I know it sounds a bit stark, but it's actually a lot more clear to children to say words, those D words, death, dying and dead. A lot of people also assume taking kids to a funeral is a bad idea. It would upset them. Lauren has some interesting advice on that as well. Yeah, one of the things that people actually have a lot of questions about is whether or not children should even go to a funeral. And so a lot of the advice nowadays is, um, this is based on some data that a charity called Winston's Wish in the UK got. They they surveyed lots of young people who had a death at a young age and asked them about the funeral and whether they had regrets going. And none of them actually said they had regrets going, but Mm. many were very regretful that they never even had the choice, that they were prevented from going in the first place. Oh, wow. So the advice is often to explain to the child in whatever 
you know, age-appropriate way. What is a funeral? Where will it be? You know, is it outside? Is it in a church, for example? Um, what will people be wearing? How will people be behaving? Explain the situation to them and then give them the choice. And if they're quite young, maybe have someone else who is there to watch them or look after them because if you yourself are very close to the person who died, you don't also want to be chasing a toddler around the room. Yeah. But it, it, there's, we don't necessarily need to stop children from going to mm. funerals. It can be a really important learning process for them. And again, for parents or caregivers who might be listening, what would you say is the best way to for them to help a child who is grieving? Like, do kids generally need professional counselling when they're going through this or do they just need a, you know, a listening ear? We, we don't all need professional counselling. And in fact, one study, which was the Harvard Bereavement Study, which was a longitudinal study of some bereaved kids in Boston from, I think, the 70s, and they, they followed them over several years and they found a few things that might be surprising or interesting. Mm -hmm. So one is that most kids actually are okay. So yes, something awful has happened to them, mm. but it doesn't mean that their whole life is destroyed. And I think we want to make sure that we don't fall into that trap as well of mm. being like, oh, your life is now over or this is, you know, the worst possible thing and your whole life is shaped by this. Something that... The CEO of Lionheart Camp for Kids says is that she wants to try and turn this thing that happened to these kids into a chapter of their life story and not the title of the book of their life. Hmm. And so I think that's an important thing to think about. I think um, one of the other important findings from that study was that when something did maybe go awry for the kids, it wasn't often in that first year. So it's not like, you know, they'll grieve for a bit and then everything's fine and everything carries on. Some of them, the, when something did go wrong, maybe they had some issues at school, for example, or started to get into trouble in other ways, it might have been in the second year or the third year, oh, you know, wow. down the track. So it's not something that, we, you know, we do want to just keep an eye on things and see how things are going. Yeah. And um, the third thing was around, you know, one of the best predictors of whether or not the kids would do okay was are the people around them doing okay? What can we do to support them? So we don't want to only offer support to children who are grieving. We want to support the people around them too. But that isn't always possible. I've been wondering about grief in other contexts, like war. How do children recover from the deaths of loved ones through war? Because that is so much in the news right now. There are conflicts all over the world, Sudan, Ukraine. But of course, the one getting the most attention at the moment is Israel and Gaza. So I asked Professor Lauren Breen if war can make grief more traumatic or harder to overcome. Yeah, definitely can be additive in that way. I mean, it's obviously just these situations are just awful and horrific and terrible and all the words that we can't even use to describe what's going on. And of course, it's not one person, for example, within a, a neighbourhood. It's it's many people and it can be many members of one family. It's, um, you know, loss on top of loss on top of loss. It could also mean that, you know, for a child, they've lost... Um, the ability to go to school because the school's not there or, the, or it's not safe to go. There could be educational losses. There could be, uh, I guess, loss of faith in, in your government or in other governments or just those kinds of things and a loss of how you thought your future would be. And as I said before, one of the best one of the best predictors of a child doing well is if the people around them are doing well. Mm. And in a situation of war, you probably don't have people around children doing well right now either. Yeah, that's really scary. I mean, 
knowing what you know about grief and childhood and, and watching the news, does that weigh on you differently? Or, you know, do you, do you dwell on these things more? Or h- how do you sort of process what's going on when your work deals with grief and, and children and grief? So I would say that certainly when I'm not working, I try and avoid all of that kind of stuff in in sort of my time, Mm -hmm. just from a self-care perspective, I have to. So I wouldn't go home and watch, you know, a really sad movie, for example. Um, But that's also recognised I'm in a very privileged position to be able to do that. And people Mm -hmm. who are living in situations where they just can't do that. I mean, yeah, I do very much feel for lots of people around the world and um, particularly, you know, on the back of a pandemic and then, yeah, wars and all kinds of situations and um, climate change and all these kinds of things. And I I worry about what is that going to look like in five years' time? Because five years ago, if someone had asked, had had told any of us, oh, this is what the next few years is going to look like, we, we would have thought they were crazy. to Lauren's research and the way we experience and discuss death here in Australia, I wanted to ask her why we often are so reluctant to talk about death and so unversed in how to do it. It's kind of baffling in a way, given that death is something all of us will definitely experience. I always think of it kind of like this paradox because it happens to all of us. It's almost like there's no point then talking about it or thinking (laughs) about it or investing in research about it or Whatever, because we all know about it anyway, right? Because we all just experience it just like everything else. Right. And, and yeah, so I find it kind of interesting. I think there is a little bit more interest, obviously, because of pandemic and things like that. It, it's sort of not quite at the margins anymore. I'm not quite the, the weirdo down the corridor anymore. <laughs> right, right. That I was sort of 15, 20 years ago doing this stuff. That's interesting. Was it really looked at askance in, in research um, to, to be paying attention to this? Yeah, I definitely felt like that when I finished my PhD and I was 28 and I had done it all on grief and I had done it by interviewing people. So it was all qualitative data as well. So a methodology that is was at the margins very mm. much and on a topic that also no one really cared about. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've totally messed up my career. Mm. Why did I do this? Obviously, it's all turned out fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I make jokes about it. But yeah, I mean, I'm really as passionate as I can try and be to, you know, make things as best as I can for grieving people and to try and improve support. And so has the conversation shifted since then? Are we starting to get better about talking about grief? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I definitely think we are. I know years ago when I'd go to a conference and I'd get in the taxi and they'd say, oh, what kind of, where are you heading? And I'd say the, the conference name and then it was just crickets and there were no, no follow-up questions. Mm. And over the years, there'd be follow-up questions about, oh, okay, well, this happened or um, what do you reckon about this? Or, yeah, in a way that it's changed quite a lot and not just in taxi drivers but just <laughs> gen- in general conversation. I, it's yeah, something people want to talk about a lot more partly because of, you know, pandemic but other factors as well. Yeah, I, I do think it's a good thing that we're more in general willing to talk about death and talk about grief but I, I don't think we're still great at it. Mm-hmm. So I try to, I think we've got, still got a long way to go. And so, if you've got a young person at home and you're feeling reluctant to talk to them about grief and death, this is Lauren's parting advice. I think it's very worthwhile to talk to kids about grief because as much as we might want to try and protect them from awful things, we can't protect them from death and we can't protect them and their feelings and all of the stuff that goes with grief. So I'd like to sort of flip the 
flip it around, I guess, and think, well, maybe we can actually be more protective of children if we prepare them for it. That is Lauren Breen, professor of psychology at Curtin University. Her study of the kinds of questions kids ask when someone close to them dies was published in the Journal of Child and Family Studies this October, and that paper is called What Bereaved Children Want to Know About Death and Grief. If you're interested in learning more about grief and the different kinds of grief, we did an episode back in July about traumatic grief, the kind that follows a violent death. That episode is called Murder, Trauma, and a Different Kind of Grief, What True Crime Pods Often Overlook. And you can find that on our website, on the ABC Listen app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producers Rose Kerr and Fiona Pepper and sound engineer Nathan Turnbull. I'm Sana Kadar. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. The Duck is the podcast attracted to weird nature, like magnets to a fridge. I'm Ann Jones and I can't help it. Pigeons make milk. Some people describe it as a yellow kind of cottage cheese consistency. Pigeons have famous relatives. The pigeon and the dodo are in the same family. And pigeons were partially responsible for the French Revolution. Let them eat squab. What the Duck has a new season out right now. Check it out on the ABC Listen app.